crowd for uh, kicking back off on Sunday nights. Thank you for being with us. Matthew chapter 27, while you're finding that, let me just read a text out of, out of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1, the Lord gives us some, some qualities, some virtues that we should have. Knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, uh, brotherly affection, love. And then he says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so short-sighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. It's interesting because he, he says in verse 9, he says that some are short-sighted because they have forgotten that they were cleansed from their former sins. I, I think it's important that we always remember the cross. Always think about the cross. Because I believe that one of, the, one of the difficulties that we have is if we go through life and we lose our passion for the cross, if we lose our excitement for the cross, if we lose our vision for what Jesus has done for us on the cross, then we lose our spiritual zeal. If we keep focused on the cross, I just believe that it, it drives us to be people who honor the Lord Jesus Christ in our life. And the problem, if we're not careful, is that we have heard so much about the cross. We have heard so many sermons on the cross. We have been through so many Easter messages. And we have done so much that it's almost like it's not a big deal to us. I don't think we would say that out loud, but if we're honest in our heart, many times we can take the cross for granted. We can act like the cross is not a big deal, but the cross is crucial. It is essential. It is foundational to our faith. And so on Sunday nights, we're going to begin and we're going to be looking at the cross. So Matthew chapter 27, let me catch you up because we started this. A few weeks ago on a Sunday morning, we looked at two of the ironies of the cross. And now we're going to look at the, the last two uh, real quickly this evening. So look at Matthew 27, verse 27. Matthew 27, verse 27, uh, and we'll look through 31 for this first one. It says, and he took a cup. That's 26. Let me find chapter 27, y'all. Okay. And then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. They put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spat on him and took the reed and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him. And they led him away to crucify him. And so the first irony we saw was that the man who is mocked as the king is in fact the king. And you see it in this text. 
you see they take what they believe to be this lowly criminal, this lowly criminal who claims that he is the king. But he does not look like a king. He does not appear to be a king. He does not seem to be a king. And so they take him to this back room and they make fun of him. They put a, a fake scepter in his head. They take thorns, five or six inches long on the thorns, and they wrap it around to a crown, and they press it upon his head, and they spit upon him. They call him the king. They taunt him. They make fun of him. They take that scepter out of his hand, and they begin to beat him with the scepter. They are laughing. They're carrying on. They're having a good time until they tire of their sport. And they're thinking, there is no way this man could be a king. There's no way that this man has any power. There's no man, way that this man has any authority because look at him in front of us. He is broken, he is crushed, and he is weak. But while they make fun, Matthew knows, God knows, and we know that Jesus is, in fact, the king. He is the king of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. And then we see a second irony beginning in verse 32. It says, as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and they kept watch over him there. And over his head they put this charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. And those who passed by uh, wagged their heads and they said, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And so here again we see a man who is, who is utterly powerless. They would, they would keep the vertical member of the cross in place and the criminal would carry the horizontal member across their back. But Jesus is so beat down and he is so weak that he cannot carry the beam himself. And so they have to get Simon, a man in the crowd, to carry the beam for Jesus. He has no power. They take Jesus to the, the place of crucifixion. They would strip him completely naked. It, it was a time to have physical pain, but it was also a time of immense shame. And they would nail him to the cross, and they would hoist him up. And people would come by and they would say, aren't you the man who is going to rebuild the temple? You said you would rebuild the temple in three days. I don't see any power right now. Where is your power? Where is your authority? It would take a lifetime to build the temple. But Jesus said he could do it in three days. And so they look at Jesus on that cross. And they see a man who has no power. But Matthew knows, God knows, and we know that by staying on that cross, Jesus showed the utmost power. By staying on that cross, he himself became the temple of God. 
and his life was resurrected three days later. And now it is not through a temple that we gain access to God. It is not through the shed blood of animals. It is not through a high priest, but it is through the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus that he shows his power and that he gives us access to the Father. And so they may look and they might say there's no power to this man. This man is not a king, but we know that he is the king of kings and that he has all the power. And I'll just say this, there are still people today who think that we are crazy because we believe to such an extreme level in our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to tell you there is going to come a day when every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord that he is the king. It will not make sense to everyone. There will be people who do not believe. There will be people who will scoff. But there will be those who have faith. There will be those who remain and seek to glorify our Lord and our Savior. Well, let's look at two more, and we'll look quickly. Look at verse 41 and 42. It says, In the same way, with mockery, the chief priest, the teacher of the law and the elders mocked him he saved others they said but he cannot save himself he's the king of Israel let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him the taunting continues now what do they mean when they say he saves others depends on who you ask what the word save means if you ask someone in finance they're going to tell you you better save some money if you want a comfortable retirement if you ask somebody who's a sports fan you're going to say the the guy that kicked that last minute field goal saved the game if you ask someone who is a tech guru they're going to tell you when you're working on a sermon you better save it otherwise you might have to start all over i've done that it's not fun It'll put you totally out of the spirit when you have to start a sermon over from scratch. I just want to tell you, it's a bad spot. You know, you're in the moment, you're, you're feeling good, then you get in the flesh real quick and you start saying, oh my goodness. And so save means different things. But when you get to verse 41 and 42, there is one thing that they mean. What they mean is that Jesus was able to save other people. Jesus saved and he healed the sick. Jesus found individuals who had demons, and he drove the demons out of them. He saved them. Jesus fed the hungry. Jesus even raised a man from the dead. What power that takes. What authority that takes. But now they look at Jesus, and they say, you could save others, but what about yourself? You're on that cross. Can you not do something for yourself? And they look at Jesus, and he seems as though he is a disappointment, and he is a failure. But we know that for Jesus to save others, that if Jesus is in fact going to save us, he cannot save himself. If Jesus is going to offer salvation to you, and if he's going to offer salvation to me, the only way to do so is to give his life in our place. 
Now, those making fun, they don't see that. They don't realize that. There's many who do not get it, but that is the gospel message. And when you look throughout Matthew, we're studying Matthew's on, Matthew on Sunday mornings, you will see that the whole point of presenting Jesus is that he is the Savior. He is the one who comes to save us from our sin. And the very first chapter... God tells Joseph that there is a a baby that is to be born. And he says in in chapter 1, verse 21, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. His name is to be Jesus because he will save his people. The name Jesus comes from the Old Testament name Joshua. The name Joshua roughly means Yahweh saves. His entire name is wrapped around the fact that he is going to save his people. When you look at the the gospel message, when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, we've been looking at that in Matthew 5 through 7. He comes, he talks about his kingdom, how to get into the kingdom of God because this is how you are saved from your sins. In Matthew chapter 8 and 9, we see the miracles, we see the healing, we see the power, we see the healing of the afflictions. And then in Matthew 8, verse 17, there's a sight from Isaiah. It says, he took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. He's a man who has come to save. And then in Mark 10, he sends out his followers to continue the message of salvation. And so the story all through Matthew is so that we will know that the Messiah has come and the Messiah has come to offer salvation. Even right before the crucifixion, at the Last Supper, he said this, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. What Jesus did is he took our place. It is the just for the unjust. It is the point to bring us to God, to give his life as a ransom for many. I often think about this text, and I think about how it could be so different. Just just imagine, if you will, Jesus is on the cross, and he's got nails in his hands and crown upon his head, and there's blood And everybody comes through and they're making fun of Jesus. You you can imagine. But the Bible tells us that that Jesus has the power. The Bible tells us at any moment Jesus could call down legions of angels. Thousands of angels could come to rescue Jesus. And, And I think, what if Jesus would have done that? What if he would be on the cross and they would come and they would taunt and they would say, you could save others, can you not save yourself? And in that moment, Jesus took a big breath And he he flexed his muscles. And all of a sudden, angels came from everywhere you could see behind Jesus. And Jesus jumps down off that cross. And he shows his power. And he shows his authority. And there's, there's battalions of angels all around. And they have swords up. And they're ready to fight for Jesus. They're ready to do whatever it takes for Jesus. What would happen? They would have to believe, wouldn't they? I mean, to see something like that, to see the power of Jesus, they would have to believe. There would be no choice. But then I thought about it. What could they believe in? They couldn't believe in a a resurrected Savior. 
They could believe in a man of power, but they could not believe in the sense that we know of to believe. They could not believe in a Savior who sacrificed himself, who gave of his life for the ones that he loved, that they could not truly believe. The only way for Jesus to save others is to go through and to not save himself. Jesus could not save himself, and by doing so, he saves others. It was not the nails in his hands that held Jesus to that cross. It was not the soldiers. It was not Pilate. It was not the authority of man. It was not the strength or the power of humanity. What held Jesus on that cross was it was the mission from God. It was the mission that Jesus had from God. And Jesus would not defect from the mission that God had given him. What held Jesus on that cross was not men, but it was the love that he has for you and for me. The reason that Jesus took the taunting, the reason that Jesus took the abuse and the pain and the suffering. Catch this if you don't get anything else tonight. The reason he took the nail in his hands and in his feet as he was there in shame and blood was flowing from his body is because he loves you so very much. That's the gospel message. Because he loves you so very much, he stayed on that cross. And if we forget that, we lose it all. If we forget that, then we go through life and we begin to say, what does it matter how I live? What does it matter how I act? But if we remember what Jesus has done for us and the love that he has for us, it pushes us to be better. It pushes us to be more devoted it pushes us to get our priorities in line. And so that is why the cross is so entirely significant. It's a different mindset when you think about one who gives their life for another. There was a movie that came out years ago. Many people saw it. I'm not saying we ought to watch it. This was a movie that took our Lord's name in vain several times. I'm not saying we should go watch this movie. It was the movie Titanic. Many people saw it. But some of the movie did not stay true to history. In the movie, there are the boat begins to, ship, to sink, and there's not enough boats to go around. You know the story of the, the Titanic. And so in the movie, men begin to push the women and children to the side so that they can get on the boats. And all of a sudden, these, these British officers stand and they draw their weapons and they fire their weapons and they push the men back. Y'all remember that? You know what I'm talking about? There's no room. Men, you must stay to the back. The problem is that never happened. And so there was an article in the New York Times and it was asking the, the film creators and directors, why did you distort history like this? History tells us that on this vessel, there were some very, very rich people. There were many, one by the name of John Astor. He was one of the richest men on earth, the Bill Gates uh, of 1912. But when the, the, the boat was, the ship was going down, this man took his, his wife and his children, put them on the vessel, and they urged him, since he was so wealthy, to get on. And he said, no, it's for women and children. 
And so they begin to ask the, the film directors, why did you distort history like this? And here's what they said. They said, if we would stay true to history, people wouldn't believe it. People wouldn't believe it. The West would not believe that men would give their life for others. Our culture has gone so far that it's just, it's not believable. When you think about that, that really says a lot about where we are. It says a lot about, as a society and as a culture, where we have come to. The belief that it is, it is too much to think of giving your life for someone else. And so that's why some people have a, such a difficult time with the story of Jesus. How could he do that? He could do that because he loves us so very much. And so he remained on that cross. Well, let me show you one more thing. Look at verse 43. Verse 43, and it says this. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran, took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see if Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. So here we have Jesus a man who cries out in despair. And he cries out and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there have been many who have taken that and they have taken it different ways. There are some who try to take a pastorly approach and they say this, Jesus has gotten to the point where he has so much despair upon him He's gotten to the point to where there is so much torture, and he's gotten to the point that there is so much pain in his life that he has abandoned his trust in God. And so they'll say this, you might get there in your life. You might go through something so difficult that you might also lose trust in God. Look, Jesus lost trust in God, but I don't buy that. I don't believe that's what happens in this text I believe that we have a man who cries out in despair but despite the cry he still trusts in God you say well why do you think that well I believe that we see just a little bit earlier chapter 26 we see Jesus in the garden you remember Jesus in the garden he asked the disciples to stay and to pray and he goes a little bit further in and he falls down and he begins to cry out to the father and he cries out, Lord, if there's any way that this cup could pass, let it be. Now, there's agony, there's anguish, there, there's so much agony and anguish that he begins to sweat droplets of blood. His blood vessels are bursting, the blood's going into the sweat glands, and he is sweating blood. So much anguish, so much pain in his life. 
But, but he goes on and he prays this, but Father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away, then not my will, but, that's right, but yours be done. And then he got up and he faced his accusers and he never backed down again. We also know that Jesus realized that he was on a mission. That Jesus realized that his life must be given so that we could find salvation. So what does it mean when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Look back in the text, you'll notice something that happens. Let me find it. Oh, it says this. And the robbers were crucified with him. They reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Have you noticed that before? When you look at this scene, that there's this darkness that comes over the land. There's this, this darkness to where it's almost as though in the judicial power of God that he has to turn away. There, there's darkness in the land. In that moment, what happens is this. Jesus takes your sin and he takes my sin. In the moment as we're reading this account of the text, what we see is that he takes upon the sin of the world. And in that moment of of justice, because we know that sin must be paid for. And in that moment, he takes, listen to me, every sin you've ever committed, every lie you've ever told, every thought that was not pure, every look that was not right, every word that's been misspoken, all the sin in my life, and there has been so much, it was cast upon the body of the spotless lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. Every sin that you ever committed in your life was cast upon our Lord Jesus Christ. And in that moment, in the, the justness of God, as God poured out his wrath upon his own son, and Jesus cries out and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he says it because he is taking the wrath that we deserve. And here's what I want you to see. The fact that Jesus said that, it means that you will never have to say that. You understand that? Case will never have to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus took my spot. You will never have to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus took your spot. Jesus took the wrath. Jesus took the punishment. Jesus took the agony that goes with sin. And he did so because he loves us so much. Jesus knew the plan. Jesus knew what was to happen. But in that moment, we know the Bible says that there is, there is separation between a sinful man and a holy God and a righteous God. And so in that moment, there was separation between God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how does that work in the Trinity? I have no idea. How does it work? I was praying this week because I was thinking about this. God, how is it that there is the oneness of the Trinity, but yet there's, I have no idea. Somebody explain that to me sometime. But that's what we see in the Scripture. We see it all comes down to the love of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And so the one who cries out in despair is the one who trusts God, 
and you trust God for all of eternity. Let me read you one text out of Romans 3. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let me ask you to close your eyes, and I want you to think about this. In your life, have you taken the cross of Jesus lightly? In your life, have you taken the cross of Jesus for granted? Have you forgot about what he's done for you? About how much he loves you? About the fact that he gave his life? For you, I want to give you just a moment, and I want to give you a moment just to pray and thank God. Thank God for what He's done. Thank you, God, for the way that you love me. Thank you, Jesus, for taking my place on that cross. Thank you, Jesus, for taking my sin upon your body. Thank you, Jesus, for paying the price that I deserve. Thank you, Lord, for loving me so very much. Take a moment and thank God for your salvation. Thank God for your salvation, realizing that there's nothing that you could have done to earn it. You're not good enough. You can't come to church enough. You can't give enough money. It's only through the shed blood of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for your blood. Lord, we do thank you for the sacrifice that was made, for the blood that was shed. And Lord, I, I pray that we will, God, we will always remember what you've done for us. Lord, we will never question your love, your devotion to us. God, and I pray that we will, we will do our best to honor that. Lord, that we will live lives that honor you. We'll live lives with priorities that are in line. God, we will do our best to be the salt and the light and point others to you. God, to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. And so, Lord, tonight we thank you for the cross. We thank you for your blood that was shed, realizing just a little bit that the cost was so great. And so, God, we are forever grateful for what that means for us. So thank you, Lord, for the way that you love us. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. Don't forget the activities of the week. We'll be back full force on a Wednesday.